1: Hello, and welcome to Digital Nomads, a podcast about nomadism and nomadic peoples around the world and throughout history. I'm your host, Maggie, and today I'm really excited to be speaking with Dr. Andrea Duffy, who is Director of International Studies at Colorado State University, where she also teaches courses in European, Islamic, and environmental history. Her research investigates linkages between societies and the environment in European imperial contexts. And she's particularly interested in the experience of travelers and nomads and in the environmental dimensions of colonization. Her first book, which is titled Nomad's Land, Pastoralism and French Environmental Policy in the 19th Century Mediterranean World, examines the impact of French environmental policy on subaltern populations in the Mediterranean region during the colonial era. And this is the topic we're going to be talking about today. So thank you so much, Andrea, for joining me. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. So your book in a nutshell, if I can sum it up, uh, is about nomadism around the Mediterranean in the 19th century and the simultaneous development of a French national environmental policy that was centered around forestry and forest management and forest science and this ideal of afforestation and creating and maintaining forests as the kind of cornerstone of a good environmental policy. And so your research focuses on the interactions of these two bodies or these two groups of actors to understand how pastoralists in the 19th century Mediterranean were shaped and changed by and reacted to this powerful scientific elite that saw pastoralism and the use of grasslands and of grazing animals as this kind of environmental scourge. Um, I hope that was an appropriate summary. That was great. Yeah, (laughs) I've done it better myself. (laughs) Um, Could you talk more about these two sort of institutions, if we can call them that? So what was the situation of pastoralism in the 19th century Mediterranean? And how was pastoralism sort of practiced and understood? And then how and why did this anti-pastoralist, pro-forest lobby group emerge in France?
0: Okay, great question. So um, I think the interaction between these two things is really what what really drew me into this topic, because at first it, it doesn't seem intuitive uh, that forests would be a major issue for pastoralists, especially Mediterranean pastoralists, because as the name implies, they use pastures, right? So <laughs> why do we care about forests and how would forest policy impact them, but it's the mobile aspect that is the main concern or was the main concern of foresters, this idea that as uh, mobile pastoralists and their herds would move between summer and winter pastures, they would pass through forests or adjacent to forests and would in the process destroy them. That was the main concern. There were also all sorts of other biases against pastoralists around the Mediterranean, blaming them for deforestation over hundreds if not thousands of years, blaming them for burning for pasture and concerned that that would uh, also contribute to or had contributed to deforestation and also an idealized vision of the the past Mediterranean as a, a much more heavily forested place, which we now know was largely an illusion. It was not really true, at least not the vision that the French foresters had. Um, But these were were two parallel institutions. They really were. And I think the intersection between them helps to understand why one was expanding and the other was contracting. There are other things going on, so I don't want to imply that it was a completely causal relationship, but um, it was a really interesting interrelated relationship. At the beginning of the 19th century, mobile pastoralism, pastoralism and mobile pastoralism in particular, was a really prominent industry all around the Mediterranean. Uh, And it, it was, at that time, probably the most efficient use of a lot of Mediterranean territory for various reasons that just wasn't conducive to farming or other practices. But seasonal pasture use by sheep and goats was a really effective way or many cases, the only way that a lot of these territories were used. And then by the end of the 19th century, the pastoralists have have largely disappeared. um, And they've been replaced by other things, forests, but not just forests, also a lot of industry and a a lot of urban growth. So there are other movements um, occurring alongside the, the story that I tell of the decline in Um, and retreat of mobile pastoralism. But a large element in that retreat over the course of the 19th century was the development of French scientific forestry and environmental policy. And so that industry was largely, not entirely, but largely tied to um, the Enlightenment and before that scientific revolution and ideas about controlling nature and also particularly the development of the cameral sciences in Prussia, which really it's it's often considered the birthplace of modern forestry. Um, and French forestry, French modern forestry uh, developed slightly different in a different direction, partly because of the concern about Mediterranean pastoralism, but it was largely influenced by the Prussian approach to scientific forestry from the the late 18th and early 19th century. So for example, um, some of the first forestry textbooks that were used by the French were actually German textbooks, uh, and then the French developed their own. But like I said, as they developed their own uniquely French version of scientific forestry, they were very much considering and concerned about the Impact of mobile pastoralists around the Mediterranean. That was much less of a concern for Prussia because it's northern Europe. Environment is very different. Forests look very different. They look similar to the forests in northern France, but very different from Mediterranean forests. So, so German foresters were working in different environments and had different concerns.
1: Okay. And what was the role of colonization in all of this? How did these um, policies get exported? to the French colonies. Um, and also one of the case studies or case regions that you talk about in your book is Anatolia, which was not a French colony, which is part of the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century. So can you talk a little bit about those kind of networks of transmission of how these policies sort of spread you know, from Prussia to France and then outwards across the Mediterranean world and possibly farther?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So my book focuses on three case studies. One in French Provence, so the south of France, one in French colonial Algeria, and then the third, the eastern node of the Mediterranean in Ottoman Anatolia. So there are common features in all of these cases. They all had mobile pastoral populations. They were called different things, but um, I argue that they were actually these groups are actually very similar, more similar than than scholars Previously, really argued partly, I think, because we're 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 often bordered in our research, so we don't often look at patterns and similarities across cultures, especially between Middle East, North Africa, and Europe, and and I really tried to do that. So, in in my case, another I think another common feature is, to one degree or another. All of these case studies could be considered examples of colonization or imperialism to the extent that that means some external power, some foreign power or non-local entity authority coming in and telling local populations how to do things differently and trying to subjugate and control them. The the case study of French colonial Algeria is the most obvious one, of course, so it's traditional colonialism, um, settler settler colonialism. But in the case of Ottoman Anatolia, it's more of a a soft imperialism influence. So the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman administration in the mid-19th century actually hired French foresters to come and serve as consultants. Uh, for their their new reformed bureaucratic administration and to implement scientific forestry on the model of France, what had been done in France about 25 years earlier, so these French consultants had a huge amount of influence over forestry in the Ottoman Empire. They basically created it because there there wasn't any kind of forest forest law or forest policy. not as such before, but the Ottoman Empire, the Tanzimat era, Ottoman Empire, so mid-19th century, um, was very much looking to Europe and looking to France in particular. Many of these consultants in different areas, not just forestry, were French. They also had some German consultants for other things, but they had a particularly close relationship with France. So that helps, I think, a little bit to explain why they chose French foresters rather than German oppression foresters. But I think they also chose these French foresters because they had a Mediterranean connection. And mobile pastoralists were, like I said, also inhabited Ottoman Anatolian, Ottoman lands, uh, the Eastern Mediterranean, which was a similar environment to the south of France. Uh, And in fact, these foresters, the first two foresters who came to consult on Ottoman forestry and help develop Ottoman forestry, were actually from the south of France. So they first got their taste of forestry in Provence um, before going to the forest school in Northern France and kind of learning about how degraded the Mediterranean environment was and how bad mobile pastoralists were. And then they exported that vision along with other aspects of French forestry to the Ottoman case. So in that way, they were invited. But it created, um, in some ways, patriarchal relationship with France that that could be construed as sort of soft soft imperialism. And then in the French case, uh, in the case of Provence, those of us who who know French history um, understand very well that Until the late 19th century, it was not the quintessential nation state. It was not the classic hexagon. It was a patchwork of little regional, effectively countries with different languages, different traditions, and a very local or or regional um, loyalty and scope. And uh, various measures over the course of the 19th century, I mean, forestry was one of them, but the bureaucratization of the government and just the expansion of the government um, helped to unify the country in a way that it never had been before. But in in this particular case, the story that I tell, it's it's part of that broader story of integrating these different regions into what starts to look like a nation state. And the process in this case is encouraging, incentivizing, maybe is a better way to put it, incentivizing settlements, or disincentivizing um, mobile pastoralism. So the the practice that had dominated Mediterranean regions becomes harder and harder, especially for small-scale pastoralists to maintain. And ironically, the practices that foresters, so the, the nationally trained forest experts, Effectively, in this case, the, the foreigners who came into Provence and told people how to do things differently with their trees, they ultimately, their impact ultimately led to less sustainable practices. So clear cutting, um, the development of industry, commercialization, And uh, pasturing to the extent that pastoralism continued, it was less likely to be mobile, so had a a more intensive environmental impact. Um, And then, of course, urbanization.
1: Yeah, I think at one point in your book, you described this process of disincentivizing mobile pastoralism and the Provence as internal colonization, which I thought was really interesting because we don't really think of these processes in within Europe in those terms, but I think it's a very salient point.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, for the people who lived in that region, it very much felt that way, and they complained mm-hmm. about it. So in documents that I read, government correspondence. Um, They would protest. So local populations would protest in various ways. They would write letters. They would set fires. They would uproot trees that had been planted. They would complain that that these trees were useless, you know, that foresters would go and plant trees and they would say, why are you planting these trees? We don't want these trees. We want the pasture. (laughs) These trees are useless. So there's very much this Um, sort of competition of expertise, you know, the locals saying, you come in here, you foresters, and you have no idea what you're talking about. Um, And you claim to be experts, but you don't listen to us. And then the foresters treating the local populations, pastoralists included, as being kind of parochial, ignorant people who needed to be shown the way, because they were destroying themselves and the environment.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's fascinating how I think we see parallels of um those patterns in environmental discourse today um, with sort of the academic elite from the global north kind of imposing standards onto local populations in the global south.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I try to make that parallel in the book a bit. I mean, and as you know, as somebody who teaches and directs an international studies program, it's really important to me that my work Uh, has contemporary relevance and parallels. And I think in this case, unfortunately, it absolutely does. Mm
1: -hmm. And I'm just curious, you know, how you got interested or how you got into this topic and how you discovered this combination of factors of pastoralism and French environmental policy and sort of forest science specifically.
0: Well, it was kind of a circuitous route, and then kind of a, a long one or a longer one um, to finding this topic and in a way it was kind of uh, an unexpected discovery that led me to this story um, and I hope it it has that feeling of kind of the overarching question is what happened to all the sheep you know so so the the book in that way is sort of like a a detective story. We're gonna find out what happened to all the sheep why don't we see them anymore when we when we visit the Mediterranean or not to the degree that we did that we would have a couple hundred years ago. At the very least, you could trace it to when I studied abroad as an undergraduate and I studied abroad in Turkey, um, kind of on a whim. I knew very little about Turkey. I was a, I was a European history major, but I don't know. It sounded cool. So got to go to Turkey. We took a bus to Syria from Turkey. So we, we did a a two week trip, which was amazing, but it was also a really difficult bus ride or the part that right between the borders of, of Turkey and Syria, it's a mountain border and it's treacherous. It's still treacherous, even with modern technology and highways. Uh, so very windy roads, a lot of up and down. At one point, I remember being in this, this bus and it's the roads are not very wide and you could look straight down to rapids, you know, hundreds of feet below. So it was, it was beautiful. It was also kind of terrifying. And we stopped at this pass, Gulek Pass, that has been a trade route and a a migration route and a a route of travel through this mountain range, through the the Taurus range for thousands of years, because it was used in Roman times. When we stopped there, just for a little break, there was a, a mobile group there with, they had camels and donkeys and sheep and goats. And, you know, they were just sort of camped out there at the side of the road. And, you know, those of us, we were college students. So we were interested in other things. But my program director got all excited. He's, he's an archaeologist. And he said, like, you need to pay attention to this. These are kind of the last of their tribe. You're not going to see this kind of thing anymore. It's disappearing. And that really got my attention. It, It made me realize that what seemed just sort of standard or just something that was happening around me that I didn't pay much attention to, suddenly I realized that I was seeing history in a really significant way. And it also made me wonder why, well, what's happened to these people? Why is this tradition disappearing? Um, And it made me really curious about that. So I eventually came back to that question in graduate school and I fell into, or I ultimately found my way into this topic, ironically, from the Ottoman side. And I say ironically because as an undergraduate, I was a—I was not a Middle Eastern focus. I was my focus was France. I was a, a modern European major, but uh, but then in graduate school, I got really interested in Ottoman history and thought that I would write my dissertation about Ottoman history. But I was really interested in nomads because of my undergraduate experience, so I wanted to write about nomads. Um, and as I learned more about nomads in the Ottoman context. I learned about the relationship between the practice of mobile pastoralism and and the decline of mobile pastoralism or sedentarization in the Ottoman case and the development of modern Western oriented uh, environmental policies. So forest policy, p- particularly forest policy and land use policy. Uh, So I I started learning more about how the Tanzimat era, um, these bureaucratic policies, bureaucratic environmental policies impacted uh, mobile tribes. And really, these were the first policies, or, or this was the first time, the mid to late 19th century, that the Ottoman administration effectively was able to get mobile pastoralists, the Yuruk in this case, to settle. Until, until then, for hundreds of years, they'd kind of gone back and forth, and military and ad- administrative officials would would try to get these groups to settle um, with some success, but as soon as they left, they'd just go back to their mobile ways. And it was sort of a, a somewhat ambivalent relationship with the state, because in some cases, uh, the leaders of mobile groups were de facto administrators of their region. So the Ottoman administration ultimately just gave them some autonomy in administering hard-to-reach areas, but they also at various points tried to settle tried to get them to settle. And that was because they, you know, they would do pesky things like crayon villages from time to time. They wouldn't pay taxes. And so, you know, they were dif- more difficult to count. So various issues with mobile populations and that are not at all limited to the Ottoman case that made, made them more or, or less appealing to the central administration, but they weren't successful in dealing with those groups and really until the mid to late 19th century. So I learned about that and I thought that was really interesting. And And then I I read a a dissertation by Seljuk Dursun about French forestry, and and, and how it had impacted. I I mean, it was primarily about French forestry in the Ottoman Empire, but he talked about the impact of that history On the Yuruk, on mobile pastoral groups in Anatolia, and I thought that's so interesting. And it brings in France. And then I was curious about what was happening in France, and why. The question that you asked earlier: Why would the Ottoman administration, why would they bring in French experts? So then I learned about the French side um, and the development of French scientific forestry, and um, the third piece was also kind of just sort of happenstance. Um, I was researching in the uh, departmental archives in uh, Aix-en-Provence and and Marseille. The French colonial archives are also in Aix-en-Provence. And so I thought, well, I might as well look in the French colonial archives while I'm here. And I, I lived in France for two years, so I had plenty of time to look. And I discovered that very similar things were happening at the same time in French colonial Algeria. I mean, for example, France exported its entire French forest code part and parcel to Algeria, even though it was a different environment in a very different context, they just took their French code um, and applied it or tried to apply it in Algeria. And again, Algeria ha- also had mobile pastoral populations um, and French forestry was a way to help subjugate them and also to justify subjugating them. So ultimately this, this story emerged where I just started sort of was like, different puzzle pieces that ultimately came together in a really interesting way. And then <laughs> kind of too late, I realized, well, wow, this is actually a really big topic and it's messy and how am I going to tell this in a coherent way, but it's also really interesting. And because it crosses so many political and cultural borders, it's a story that, that people wouldn't know and they they wouldn't necessarily expect to know. It's a surprising story. So it it felt really important to tell that story once it emerged to me, Um, even though it was, like I said, messy, and it was a struggle to try and bring it all together.
1: Mm -hmm. And if I could go back to the question that you posed earlier there of what happened to all the sheep, could you maybe give listeners to the extent that this is possible, a sense of sort of the Demographics or the scale of pastoralism in the Mediterranean in these three regions at the beginning of the 19th century and at the end. You know, I think maybe some concrete numbers when discussing nomadic peoples are very difficult to come by. So I understand if you can't provide those, but if you could maybe give a sense of what the actual decline and retreat, as you put it, of pastoral nomadism was over the course of the century.
0: Yeah, I can certainly give a sense like you said, that the numbers are really hard. And that was another thing I struggled with. People, mobile people don't write things down. So when we study mobile people, we have to be really creative and challenged (laughs) in trying to um, to describe their activities. Um, But yeah, okay. So the Mediterranean is a, an interesting, if not if not unique, region in that its environment really supports pastoralism and agriculture. So, in many cases, agriculturalists and pastoralists would live side by side. But that symbiotic relationship, to the extent that it was symbiotic, and, and to a degree, it was. I mean, there there was even overlap. There were some pastoralists who would also um, double as farmers. In, on a seasonal basis, or um, from time to time, but they would also benefit from um, from crop yields, uh, and then farm farming populations or agricultural populations would benefit from from the produce of pastoralism. So there, to to an extent, the idea of this dichotomy, you know, pastoralist versus agriculture, it's it's really. Not It wasn't that way traditionally around the Mediterranean. And that's fairly, fairly unique. Um, If you look at a lot of other parts of the world, at least if you look a few hundred years ago, so before the 19th century, there are regions that were more likely to be dedicated to agriculture or more likely to be dedicated to pastoralism, especially mobile pastoralism, because those regions didn't support agriculture. But the Mediterranean really supported both. And another factor there was that uh, until the modern era, the Mediterranean, well, I guess in the early modern era, I should say, specifically, the Mediterranean region had relatively lower population, so relative to 19th century plus, and and also relative to antiquity. And that was partly because of some of the environmental challenges of, of living in that region, especially in coastal regions year round. I mean, just to give an example, malaria was a concern and uh, no longer as much of a concern after the invention, or I guess in some ways, discovery of quinine as a way of combating malaria in the, in the mid 19th century. So that helped these regions to become more populated and populated year round. But if you look at the beginning of the 19th century and before that, so pre-modern era, most of the, most of the Mediterranean was the, the two primary industries, I'll put it that way, were pastoralism and agriculture. And pastoralism was predominantly mobile pastoralism of small scale animals sheep in the most were most prominent but also goats and that varied regionally a little bit too the entire mediterranean region was largely divided between those those two practices and then if you look at the same region all around the mediterranean in the late 19th century early 20th century you see a very different landscape You see a lot of commercial farming. So in the south of France, for example, a lot of regions that were formerly pasture were now vineyards or more recently, lavender fields, which (laughs) some could argue is even less practical than wine. Some would argue that wine is very practical. I think the French would. But you don't see a lot of sheep. Now, since then, they've been coming back so um, this, this is an interesting thing that's really beyond the scope of my study, but but I, I really enjoyed learning about this when I was researching it. Um, starting in the 1950s, uh, there was very much like a sort of back to the land movement where uh, people, in many cases, young people who are raised in urban environments would um, want to pursue a career in as a, as a shepherd. Uh, so that they could feel connected to the land and get away from whatever negative aspects of modern industrial society they felt like they needed to escape. So this is especially true in France. And there's also been a, a revival of appreciation for meat that is produced by mobile pastoral herds. So there's, there's a, this is not universal, but there is a perception that mobile sheep produce better meat than sta- than sheep that are stabled, just stabled in the winter. So that, that has contributed to um, a more recent revival and expansion of pastoralism in France. Those stories, the kind of continuation of My history very significantly in um, Algeria and in Anatolia, um, now Turkey, Um, like I said, in the Ottoman slash Turkish case, the mobile pastoral groups were largely sedentarized by the late 19th century, and they've just been Really, that that practice, that tradition, has just been declining steadily ever since. Similar in French colonial Algeria, but because it was a colonial context with a very extensive and very divisive um, war for independence, it, it, that's also a a different story and a and a different kind of history. But in, I guess, in I can say, bringing it up to the present, um, in Algeria as well, pastoralism is still practiced. The by the end of the 19th century, um, mobile pastoralists—well, they were mobile pastoralists. They were marginalized, if not obligated, strongly encouraged. To move their center of operations to the, the effectively the steppe, the Haute Plateau, um, which is kind of the foothills to the Atlas mountain range. So these were regions that were much drier, they were much, they were not at all conducive to farming. And the idea was that they were less, less desirable lands. It's really not that different from the the story of. Native Americans and, um, reservations in United States history. Um, in fact, that, that was another uh, reading the destruction of the bison in grad school was for me, uh, that classic work helped sort of get the gears turn about this topic as well. Cause it's, it's a similar kind of story, unfortunately, sort of the march of what might be called in, in scare quotes, mod- modernity against these traditions that are seen as less modern and and also in this case seen as inferior or less environmentally friendly. At least the 19th century French foresters saw it that way. So I don't know. No, no strong numbers for you, but I hope that gives you a better sense of what happened to all the sheep. <laughs> Definitely.
1: Part of my own sort of desire for an answer to that question is I grew up in Switzerland where transhumans and sort of Alpine pastoralism is such an important part of the culture and the economy and the geography and the language and the religion and everything. It's embedded mm-hmm. in the nation state in a way that I think is sort of the opposite of what happened in France and the example that you give.
0: Yeah, I wanted to say, um, I think that's true from a certain perspective and to a point, but I should also add that France now, like, so once the sheep kind of disappeared, they became part of Provence's sort of folklore and and traditional identity. Um, So if you go to Provence now, you will see sheep, well, you won't necessarily see living sheep everywhere, but you will see pictures of sheep. Um, there's a, a roundabout that I would drive through a lot that had these dancing sheep, like life, like not just life size, like human size sculptures of dancing sheep. And you'll see sheep on buildings. So uh, sort of gargoyles, but they're sheep. And then they're there famous or regionally famous poets who wrote about pastoralism, mobile pastoralism, transhumance, so it's, it's it's interesting that it's like at the moment that the reality of mobile pastoralism kind of disappeared from the landscape, it became part of this, it became part of the, the myth of the regional identity in, in a way that's not dissimilar from Switzerland. I mean, in Switzerland, pastoralism and, and mobile pastoralism is still very much alive. I, I've also been to switzerland and um Mm. and and have gotten to see some of the parades you know that are just very very much like this is our our national folklore tradition um and obviously very important to to local populations and, and local yeah culture but that's not super dissimilar from identity and culture in Provence now but it ironically it, it kind of that developed that story or narrative or retelling developed as the actual practice disappeared
1: mm, yeah that's true i think there are some similarities there as well and how pastoralism is idealized in the modern state you know again in the context of Switzerland, the fact that Heidi and yeah. the glorification of sort of, you know, the pastoral romantic ideal, all of these things is like a national symbol of Switzerland. But I think your work touches on a lot of otherwise sort of hidden legacies of pastoralism in Europe and these practices. Yeah, like you were saying, these very nuanced ways in which pastoralism and pastoralists interact with the modern state and how the modern state sometimes adopts or kind of wants to glorify pastoralism and sometimes wants to suppress it. Um, and I think, yeah, we see those instances in in many places.
0: I mean, that that's even true in, in Turkey, actually, you know, with the with, uh, The transition from the Ottoman Empire, the end of the Ottoman Empire after World War I and the transition to Turkey as a a modern republic, as a modern state, the early rhetoric around nationalism in Turkey very much tried to overstep the Ottoman period and focus on mobile pastoral Turkic roots as a national identity. Like the, the, the nationalist Turks in the 1920s they saw themselves as the descendant, explicitly the descendants of Turkic tribes, rather than tracing their heritage to the Ottoman Empire. And they e- explicitly tried to disassociate themselves from that imperial history, which is really interesting. And, and also con- kind of conflicted because at the same time, the, there were still mobile pastoralists in Turkey, and they were not generally treated well. So the rhetoric and the idealization, I think, can happen at the same time as um, the reality is not just declining, but also actively marginalized.
1: Hmm. Yeah, if I could just kind of continue this theme about pastoralism within the Mediterranean as kind of a larger geographical unit, you made I think, a really interesting point in your book about the categorizations of nomadism as practiced in the Middle East or in North Africa versus in Europe, where you know pastoralism, when it's in Algeria or Anatolia, is called nomadism. So when it's practiced by Muslims basically they're nomads, whereas these very similar practices, when they're practiced in Europe by Christians, are called transhumans. And mm-hmm. of course, these two words mean essentially the same thing, but have very different cultural connotations and resonances. And in you know, in studies of nomadism, there's a lot of discussion about the creation of this false nomadic versus sedentary binary, um, where scholars of nomadic peoples and practices spend a lot of time thinking about how we can add more nuance to these discussions and think of nomadism as more of a spectrum rather than a strict binary. And so I think your work also points to another binary in this field of pastoralist studies that's conceived of kind of pastoralism in the global north versus in the global south, where they're conceived very differently, despite being, for all intents and purposes, similar lifestyles. Um, So I'm curious if you could just say more about your choice to focus on pastoralism in the Mediterranean as a kind of broader geographical territory and how or if we should think about the differences and similarities between pastoralist traditions and how we can point to sort of similarities between these practices without then verging into kind of essentializing.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So that, I mean, just to to go into my my process a little bit, when I first started reading about these histories the terminology actually threw me off because I thought, well, they must be different. They must be vastly different experiences and industries in France or versus Algeria versus Anatolia because they're described in such different ways. But then the more I learned about them, I realized that they actually aren't that different. And then the more I sort of dug into those terms, the the terms that are used, the the more squishy I realized they actually were. I think a spectrum is useful because there is a range, right? There's absolutely a range of mobile behavior uh, and it's it's useful to be able to describe it um, and to describe it actively and and specifically and also that helps address the the mobile versus sedentary binary you know it it just oh you're you're mobile or you're not like it's helpful to be able to be a lot more nuanced than that um but my main concern when i like i said when i was researching this is that it really seemed like there was sort of a racist or prejudiced component in terms of People from a certain place with a certain religion being described differently, consistently differently than people than, yeah, well, in this case, Christians in Europe, even though the practices, what they were doing <laughs> was really very similar. I mean, even the the idea, even the, the distinctions that people would try to draw, for example, uh, the length of their... Commute, or you know, the the seasonal bi- migration distance in France, they would travel up to five hundred miles. You know, which is which is a, a qualification for nomadism in many contexts. But they were still called transhumans. Um, another uh, common element or common uh, aspect of of these term these terminologies these, these descriptions is the group type so there's this idea of the solitary shepherd in European mobile pastoralism versus the the tribe or the group the the clan whatever whatever they called it there, there were various names in Middle Eastern Islamic and North African cultures but even that is, is rather deceptive. Uh, in most cases, it, it wasn't a solitary shepherd. Shepherds often traveled together. They often had families and traveled with their families. When they lived in their summer pastures in the mountains, there were multiple cabins with multiple, you know, with shepherds in them. So it was sort of a, a village of shepherds. So that the idea of this solitary shepherd who's just out there on his own. And it's always a male, right? That's the image surrounded by all the sheep. It's not really accurate. And the, the reality is, um, I think, if not exactly the same, has a lot of similarities with mobile pastoral patterns in around the Mediterranean, including uh, the Muslim Mediterranean. And so I guess what what I was trying to do is just not not necessarily to say that these are all the same because they're not, But also to push back against the idea that they are somehow separate or if not diametrically opposed, really, that they're they're somehow inherently distinct and different practices, especially because... I'm concerned about the bias that's involved in that kind of representation, but also because when we look at the similarities among these practices, among these traditions around the Mediterranean, that's when it gets really interesting. At least I think so. So, I mean, and and that's what I'm trying to do with my book and and weaving these different stories together is to expose some of the ways that, that they were similar And through that, to really emphasize the Mediterranean region as, again, if not a unique context for mobile pastoralism, a fairly distinct region for Mediterranean pastoralism, where mobile pastoralists lived side by side with agriculturalists before the 19th century and and where in the 19th century, all around the Mediterranean, this tradition significantly changed and retreated. And of course that varies, you know, somebody could come back and say, well, what about Spain and Spain Mm -hmm. pastoralists were, you know, very prominent and powerful regional leaders through the 19th century. So certainly, yes, it varied from place to place, but I mean, even bringing Spain in, for example, I think there's still really interesting patterns and similarities around the Mediterranean and across the Mediterranean from, you know, really across. So not just the European Mediterranean, but the European side's the African sides and the Middle Eastern, um, Asian sides, and and looking at the looking across cultures, across languages, um, and across political borders, and seeing those patterns emerge, I think is really valuable. And in order to do that, we need to get past some of these traditional dichotomies of of terminology.
1: Mm-hmm. We touched on this a little bit already, but the legacies in the present day of this historical situation that you describe. You know, I was thinking, you know, reading your book while COP26 was happening, you know, and thinking about this kind of urgent push for increased sustainability and people looking for ways they can help mitigate climate change. I feel like We've inherited some kind of simplistic notions of like livestock, bad forests, good sort of thing where, you know, in current environmentalist discourse, these are presented as two very easy or relatively easy and tangible solutions or kind of individual or local things that one can do to mitigate climate changes like become a vegan and Plant trees. Um, And so, this is something that I saw your work as possibly adding some more nuance to these conversations, as you know, pointing out that these are not solutions that are kind of equally or universally applicable um, and that would work well in all contexts and ecologies and for all people. So, I'm just curious um, how you see sort of the longer term consequences of these 19th century ideals of environmentalism playing out today.
0: Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, That's for me, that's an important part a really important part of my book. And and so I I hope that comes across. I came at this subject as a committed environmentalist. um, And I loved reading the perspectives of these foresters who really believed that they were saving the world. They really did. I mean, not all of them, you know, for some of them, it was just a job. But there were some for whom planting a tree was like a step to saving the world, to saving the planet. So they really were proto-environmentalists before that was a thing. And, and in, in a way, maybe they were the first Western environmentalists. And I, I do think to a degree, modern forestry helped establish conservationism and a conservationist ethic. So they, they believed in what they did, but they were largely wrong. <laughs> and their impact on the Mediterranean environment ultimately really made things worse, or, or it, it encouraged worse practices. Um, so they, they contributed to developments that caused major environmental problems that we are still dealing with today. And I think that is a really important lesson. Mm-hmm. I mean, it still happens. All the time, there are those of us who are trying to do good and have good intentions in, in environmental contexts and, and other international development contexts, but we do all sorts of harm because we don't we don't understand the broader context. Um, we have a, a limited um, kind of myopic view of our work and what we're implementing um, and we think we have the solution but we, we don't. And it's particularly problematic when we don't listen to local expertise or when we don't engage, local voices, that also is very much a problem now, Um, particularly a problem with international aid and international development, um, white saviorism, and generally efforts, uh, volunteerism is another example. These are all things I teach about, um, but generally efforts largely by those in in wealthy nations to help those um, in the global South. So they're they're often well-intentioned. They're I would, maybe even usually well-intentioned, but they very often just exacerbate the problem. Uh, and I, I can give you a, a specific example from my experience. A friend of mine uh, served in the Peace Corps in northern Algeria. And so this was, you know, maybe 15, 20 years ago. And her job was to uproot trees, so to dig up the trees that the French colonial administration had planted. Um, because wow. they because they were so bad for the environment. Um, and one of the major problems with them is that they required a lot of water in a region that has very limited water, um, where water is is a really valued resource and and so they they were useless but the French when they planted them they really thought that it was going to help they thought that the trees would bring back, Green that it would that it would change the environment that it would change the climate even and that it would make the desert recede uh, and that it would make it the water follows the trees was was what they would say so they were wrong uh, but they were well intentioned and similarly today uh, and and in the future when we you know we have major environmental challenges major global environmental challenges to solve it is critical in order to solve them, that we really carefully examine the problem, and also I think that we, we get all of the perspectives that we can, that we listen to local expertise, that we listen to different perspectives, that we share our knowledge um, in a collaborative way so that we can promote positive change and not make things worse. We we don't have, we've run out of time to make things worse. I'll put it that way.
1: Yeah, well thank you. That was, I think, a good note to end it on, albeit a slightly <laughs> pessimistic one. Yeah. But yeah, thank you so much for doing this. That was really, really fascinating.
0: Absolutely. Great questions. I I really enjoyed sharing and and also just reflecting on on the work and, and getting your perspective on it as well.
1: Thanks so much for listening. And of course, special thanks to Dr. Andrea Duffy for coming on to talk to me. I'll post some links and images and further resources related to the content of this episode on my Twitter at nomads underscore pod, so please check that out if you're interested. You can also contact me there or by email at digitalnomadspod at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, or if there's a topic you'd like me to cover in the future. Thanks so much for listening.